Is it fair of God to demand celibacy from gay Christians? That's the topic this morning. And what I'd like to do, I'm just trying to sort out two things that I want to do. I I had an article sent to me. I did a series, uh, a nine-week series um, the Bible and sexual orientation. Anybody remember that? Seven. In that uh, series, I mentioned that it wouldn't be long. I said, just wait and see. As this rolls farther and farther down the road, it won't be long before other groups demand the same rights as. Uh, same-sex couples for marriage and recognition. I'm not speaking on this today. That's why I'm hesitating. I don't want to waste the time, but I just want you to kind of see what's going on. Uh, This is from the Northern Colorado Gazette. So this is an American publication. And so it begins. This is right after, by the way, this past week, the United States Supreme Court, uh, elected by nobody, I might add, (laughs) Uh, decided that everyone's view of marriage had to change. So, get that. Twelve people, seven of whom decided that the country had to change its view. See, there's a difference. Now, at least in Ireland, now they, uh, they had their referendum and approved of uh, same-sex marriage rights for same-sex couples. I don't like the result, But I like the process. In Ireland, every person had a ballot. See? Every person got to vote and decide what the country would do. What what they did there is, in the U.S., is a group of people (laughs) locked in a room decided, no, everyone's view has to change. And so it begins. Northern Colorado Gazette. Pedophiles call for the same rights as homosexuals. I can't read the whole thing to you. I'll talk more about it next week when we do the one message on transgenderism. So I'm kind of jumping in, and it's a little bit PC, but you just have to understand I can't read three pages of small print. Uh, Using the same tactics used by gay rights activists, pedophiles have begun to seek similar status, arguing their desire for children is a sexual orientation no different than heterosexual, like you, me, No different from heterosexuals or homosexuals. Critics of the homosexual lifestyle have long claimed that once it became acceptable to identify homosexuality as simply an alternative lifestyle or sexual orientation, logically, nothing would be off limits. Gay advocates have taken offense at such a position, insisting this would never happen. However... Psychiatrists are now beginning to advocate redefining pedophilia the same way homosexuality was redefined several years ago. Um, In 1998, the American Psychiatric Association issued a report claiming that the negative potential for adult sex with children, the negative potential was overstated. You know, you read something, you go, no, no, it can't say that. 
the negative potential of adult sex with children was overstated and that the vast majority of both men and women reported no negative sexual effects from childhood sexual abuse experiences. Pedophilia has already been granted protected status by the federal government. This is the U.S. The Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act lists sexual orientation as a protected class, and it does not define the term. Earlier this year, two psychologists in Canada declared that pedophilia is a sexual orientation, just like homosexuality, or heterosexuality. Van Gisgem, psychologist and retired professor, University of Montreal, told members of parliament, pedophiles are not simply people who commit a small offense from time to time, but rather are grappling with what is equivalent to a sexual orientation, just like any other individual may be grappling with heterosexuality or even homosexuality. He went on to say, true pedophiles have an exclusive preference for children, which is the same as having a sexual orientation. You cannot change this person's sexual orientation. Dr. Quincy, professor emeritus of psychology at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, agreed with Van Gesgum. Quinsley says pedophiles, sexual interests prefer children, and there is no evidence that this sort of preference can be changed through treatment or through anything else. Linda Harvey of Mission America said the push for pedophiles to have equal rights will become more and more common as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender groups continue to assert themselves. It's all part of a plan to introduce sex to children at younger and younger ages. Is this sounding familiar to you at all? Introduce sex to children at younger and younger ages to convince them that normal friendship is actually a sexual attraction. Milton Diamond, a University of Hawaii professor and director of the Pacific Center for Sex and Society, stated that child pornography could be beneficial to society because potential offenders could use child pornography as a substitute for sex against children. Yeah, pornography's been a real treat for the world, you know. String of degrees behind those names professing themselves to be wise. So next week we'll get into some of those things, and then we'll get back to James. Is it fair of God to demand celibacy from gay Christians? The, the, complaint, the complaint commonly runs like this. People who, who feel that the Bible's view is, is intolerant or negative or reinterpret the text so that the Bible isn't against committed monogamous same-sex relationships. Generally don't have a strong textual leg to stand on and they know it. The argument generally isn't framed that way. Next week there's a couple arguments used and I'll, I'll look at those. But they don't typically argue that way. They argue on the basis of what seems loving and, and tolerant. I've had people in this church, uh, good Christian people, I've had people come up to me and say something like this. Pastor Don, I know so-and-so. They used to go to this church. And, and they're gay. And they're gone. And I'm friends with them. 
How fair is it that I get to get married and have a family and you get to get married if you want and have a family, but these people, we're telling them, yes, you can follow Jesus, yes, you can come to church, but you can't, you can't date another man or another woman and, and you can't get married and you have to remain celibate. And so here we say the church loves them, we say Jesus loves them, we say God has grace, but look at what we do to these poor people. We tell them they can come and sit in the pew and they can worship Jesus and they can read their Bibles, but they are destined to a life of loneliness. Pastor Don, God isn't fair. That's particularly the argument I'm looking at today. All right? That's what I want to deal with. I'm going to read the text again because I want to highlight some things. So we're in Hebrews, and I hope in some way, I I know I always say it, but especially today, it would help me. And by the way, if I were here and had uh, small children, if they were my children, I wouldn't want them here for this. I'm, I'm not trying to be crude or crass or anything. It's just the nature of the subject. So that's entirely your call. But I just wanted you to know that and to, and to say that up front. I was going to say, have the text there because I want to highlight some things and compare certain verses, and you need all of these in front of you, so you have to do a bit of work this morning. You okay with that? You sound so excited, boy. Just calm down. Calm down. Is it fair of God to demand celibacy from gay Christians? Hebrews three twelve to nineteen, and then four, eleven to thirteen. Take care, brothers. Oh, for some reason, this is moving all over the screen. I don't know why it's doing that. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now remember that phrase, the deceitfulness of sin, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As it is said, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest... But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter. So here's what I want you to see. One, heard. Two, rebelled. Three, unable. Do you see that progression? That's really important. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So they heard. They rebelled against what they heard. And there's a reason for that. That's what I want to talk about. Why they rebelled. And because of that, they came to a condition where they were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They were unable. You you lose the capacity to follow, to obey. 
Let's keep going. Let us, this is the church, therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then these words, which we all know, but usually read by themselves without the surrounding context. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and this phrase, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Help us, Lord Jesus. Our anger is not going to fix anything. Speaking the truth in love, giving your word its place in our heart, the lordship of Jesus, his place in our witness. And so guide us as we go through this. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, how shall we read the desires of our own hearts? The opening words of our text make it clear that all the verses I read are intended as words of instruction and direction to the church. Take care, brothers. Let us then, 4.11. So they're words that are written to the New Testament church, but the account... The historic details of the account come from the Old Testament story of the Israelites, a whole generation of them being banned from inheriting what God promised. We should mark that down. These people would not receive what God promised them. Red lights should start flashing all over the place. So the 12 spies had been sent into the promised land to assess the best way of taking it. Remember in Sunday school, when I was a kid, we used to sing about the 12 spies. Ten were bad, two were good. We used to stand up and sing that. I don't know if the ten were bad and the two good. Ten of the 12 came back and led the rest of the people to wrongly assume that they couldn't do what God told them to do. God had unrealistic expectations of them. And just as those spies had been gone on their assignment for 40 days before they came back, the Israelites would be judged in the wilderness for 40 years. One year of unfulfilled wandering for each day of the expedition's unbelief. That's where the 40 comes from. Now, what does the writer of Hebrews see in this account that fills him with such urgency? He goes over it in detail, and he talks about it for quite a few verses. What is he trying to drill into the consideration of the church? What's his concern? Well, he tells us that in verse 11 of chapter 4, where he says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall 
by the same sort of disobedience. Those last four words are very carefully selected. He's not just worried about disobedience. The writer is worried about a certain sort of disobedience. There's a, there's a kind of disobedience. Do you see that in that text? The same sort, like theirs. There's something they did that is particularly dangerous and to which we are particularly vulnerable. A, a kind of dis, a type of disobedience. There's, there's a kind of disobedience that is, well, it's harder to recognize as disobedience. It's harder to feel as disobedience. There's, there's a sort of disobedience that doesn't feel like disobedience once it takes hold of our hearts. There's, there's a sort of disobedience, a kind of disobedience that is, well, it looks more reasonable. It's easier to rationalize. There's a type of disobedience that looks less sinful because its very naturalness makes God seem unfair. There's a kind of disobedience that is particularly deceptive because its very naturalness makes God seem unfair. After all, so the 12 spies, or at least the 10 spies reported, there were, there were giants in the land. They're saying the assignment from God is unreasonable. We were like grasshoppers before these people. That's what the spies said. There are giants in the land. God's assignment is greater than our capacity to accomplish. God's not being fair. That's, that's the heart of the writer of Hebrews' caution in 4.11. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, I need you to keep thinking with me just for a minute. Because the writer is actually just repeating in that 4.11 reference what he began to flag in 3.12 to 13. Here it is again. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a sort of sin, 411, that deceives before it corrupts, 313. We are all easily led into it. The, the deceitfulness of sin is defined by our text very specifically as, as, here's, the condition of regulating your life by desires that feel more natural than God's law. Okay? That's it. The deceitfulness of sin lies here. 
regulating your life by desires that feel more natural than God's law. So, here's where we've landed so far in our study of these texts from Hebrews. There is, 4.11, a uniquely dangerous sort, that's the word, of disobedience. And it roots itself in our hearts. This type of disobedience is particularly dangerous because it roots itself in our lives by a kind of deception. Inner feelings capture the conscience and turn it against the fairness of God who created us and has rights over us. But there's a sort of unbelief that regulates life by inward desire rather than by the will of God. And so those desires feel natural. All sorts of them. Those desires feel natural and so we interpret God as being unfair on the basis of what we feel in our hearts. The desires deceive us. I have one more verse. This is where we begin to understand the context for some of the best-known and frequently quoted verses in the whole New Testament. Hebrews 4.12. It's after 4.11, this sort of disobedience and how dangerous it can be. And after the, the verses in chapter 3 where, where our hearts get deceived by a certain type of unbelief. Where our desires feel more natural than God's will and God's way. So God seems unfair. It's after all of that that now the writer of Hebrews comes to his conclusion, the punchline. For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Notice those words, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's it's in the inner being, the heart. It's in the heart that everything about my personal identity gets launched and thought through. It's in the heart dreams are formed. Love is grown. Choices are made. And we've already seen there's a sort of disobedience that, that metastasizes in the human heart when the Word of God isn't allowed its proper governing place. So the issue simply defined is, how will we discern That's the word he uses in 4.12, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How will we discern? How will we adjudicate what we feel in our own hearts? What, what, What authority regulates my life? 
our text in 4.12 says God's Word is the discerner. And it's particularly of the, see that? The heart. Where everything is felt, where everything is sensed, where everything has its origins. The writer says, the Word of God is the discerner of what I feel in my inner self. It's, it's the base from which I form all opinions about my own feelings and my own desires and my own aspirations. As God's word holds its proper place, as the, as the discerner, there it is, as the discerner of my inner being, I begin to see the difference between what feels natural and what is divinely acceptable. That was an important sentence. Something isn't innocent just because it seems natural. That's why I read that article about pedophilia. Who among us would say it's, it's all right for someone to abuse a four-year-old boy simply because it feels natural to me to do that? Anybody? There's a difference between what's natural and what's acceptable. Now, there are extreme cases like that where so far in society, just about everybody would have a common opinion. But that's a sliding scale. How are we going to regulate what feels natural and what is divinely acceptable? Well, the word is the discerner of the heart, all the things that I feel in my heart. I don't mean to shock you. Do you know that you sometimes feel things in your heart that aren't pleasing to God? Has anybody ever experienced that? Let me see your hand. I want to see every hand in the room go up. How many have? Yeah. Yeah. Something isn't innocent just because it feels natural. But there's a problem. Because what I'm feeling reads natural to me, I can't, without God's divine discerner, I can't recognize my feelings as anything other than innocent without God's word. One thing is certain. I will use something to discern my inner life. I will use something to adjudicate the desires that come into my heart, if the word is ejected or ignored as the ultimate discerner of my inner self, something else will replace it. And the default discerner of my heart will become what my own desires tell me about who I am and what I feel. Without God's word... Listen to me, I will self-define my inner life, and so will you. So either God's Word will interpret my heart, or, and this is increasingly common in the evangelical church, I will interpret God's Word around the desires of my heart. That's where we've come so far in this teaching, the first point.
Point number two. I've never talked about this, and I need to. It's really an important topic. What does it feel like to be a new creation in Christ Jesus? What does it feel like to be a new creation in Christ Jesus? Here are the texts I want to look at. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Do you ever cheat someone out of something that was rightly theirs? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't get in. Profess, blah, 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 whatever you want. You're not getting in. And such were some of you. But you were washed. These are great words. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I want to look at another text before I talk about both of them. Now, aren't you glad? I don't mean me preaching. Forget about that. I'm not talking about that. But aren't you glad to be in a church where all we're doing is open the book and look at the words? Is there anything better to do in church than that? Open the book. Look at the words. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 17. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, you're alive, you're sitting here, you're breathing. All have died. What he means is this. You used to regulate your inner heart by your own desires. That ended when you came to Jesus. Not having those desires, that didn't end. But defining your life by them, that ended. There's a new Lord. Therefore all have died. 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then these strange words that nobody talks about. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What? Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no more. And these words, read it with me out loud. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, both those texts, I wanted to read them both, and I'll I'll go back and pull bits and pieces out of them. Both of them come at the same reality from slightly different angles. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, There's this great change that has taken place in those who are washed, sanctified, justified. You can see that. I'm not making it up. 1 Corinthians 6.11. And this change is so potent that Paul dares to call each of these Christians, and this is in the next text, a new creation. great. But he says something else in that 2 Corinthians 5 text, in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
What can that mean? Well, regarding, that has to do with the way you look at things. The way you calculate, regard, observe. It's a word describing the way we consider things, the way we think of things, the way we describe things. And Paul uses this term to to describe the way these Christians picture each other, the way they consider each other, and the way they consider themselves. And so Paul is saying they no longer consider themselves according to the flesh, verse 16. And here's what I think that means. He means they don't interpret their lives just by their own beings. Or in the words of Hebrews 4.12, they don't self-discern their own hearts. The Word of God discerns everything about their hearts now. All right? Let me try to make this even more plain. Think of those people Paul described in 1 Corinthians 6 when you get to 9, 10, and 11, where neither the sexually immoral, do you see it? Or the idolaters, they're the adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Now, everything hinges on what you interpret Paul to be saying. These people, the ones Paul says are now, 1 Corinthians 6.11, washed sanctified, justified. What is Paul saying about them? What does it feel like to be a new creation? I would submit to you that we rarely talk about that. We like it. We say amen to it. What is Paul telling us about these people? Is Paul saying the, let's use his words, the sexually immoral man? Is Paul saying that the sexually immoral man was never again going to be tempted by temple prostitutes or pornography? What about the greedy, quotes, woman? Did she never, ever again feel the desire for fine jewelry or silk? What about the drunkard? He lists the drunkard. Perhaps after years of addiction, did this drunkard wash, sanctify, justify? Did he never again feel the longing for drink? And what about the homosexual? Paul lists him too. Did this man never again feel the draw of same-sex attraction? Is that what Paul means when he says they're washed, sanctified, justified? And I'm saying this morning, how you answer those questions has everything to do with perceiving what Paul is actually saying in these wonderful verses. I'm arguing Paul isn't and never intended to say, any of these people never again experienced these desires. What I am saying is, 
Not one of these people was any longer defined by those desires. Not that they didn't experience ever again any of those fallen desires but that they weren't defined by them. That's what Paul means when he says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. People aren't defined by the longings and the desires they feel in their hearts. They aren't merely the sum of their desires and instincts. We don't regard anyone just according to the flesh. People aren't merely the sum of their instincts. There's a new interpreter for their lives. There's a new discerner, Hebrews 4.12. And all of that bumps us right up to the question in the title of this message. Is that fair, Pastor Don? Point number three. Does our good shepherd really lead us in the right paths. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. That's the alternate reading. If you have the ESV, there's a little number. You look down and you'll see that the other reading, it can be translated either way. Paths of righteousness, right paths. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. God has a script for our lives that almost always runs contrary to the inclinations of our heart. And because the cultural air we all breathe is polluted, we can't find those right paths by following our own inclinations. We need that discerner of our hearts. We need the adjudicator. Right paths don't mean pleasant paths. Right paths don't mean comfortable paths. It means right or righteous based on the fulfillment of God's character. Paths ordered around the original design of our good creator's heart. As we've seen from the way I read Paul's letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, new creations experience old desires. So what happens when God's right paths cut through dark areas of human greed, addiction, pride, sexuality? The right path, as any explorer knows, it frequently goes uphill, over cliffs, around bends. So, Pastor Don... Please answer the question. Is it fair for God to call a person of same-sex desire to lifelong celibate sexual restraint? Marva Dawn 
in her wonderful little book, Sexual Character, says the following. Perhaps my physical handicaps make me more aware of the true nature of the question, or perhaps they make me more blunt. But I can't help but respond to the question of fairness by asking in turn, is it fair that I, who once was extremely active and skilled in sports, am denied the physical pleasure of running and playing because of a crippled leg? Is it fair that loving music as profoundly as I do, I'm denied the sensual pleasure of hearing it because my deaf ear constantly rings? Or is it fair, she's blind by the way, is it fair that visual limitations prevent me from enjoying beauty and make me unable to do the reading that I love and must do for my work? She then goes on to say, I would gladly trade sexual fulfillment in a moment to have my sight back. What about other people? Heterosexual people. I talk to them. What about heterosexual people who feel trapped in a marriage without love? What about people I've talked to a person specifically who have silently prayed God would take them home rather than spend one more week with a spouse they'd rather die than be with? but know in their hearts that God has called them to a covenant in marriage. The right path can be tough. Where are we going to go with all of our issues in this broken, fallen world with this question about fairness? How much of life always feels fair? And yet this is, this is the world. This is the only kind of world in which we're called to follow Jesus. The list of unfulfilled desires is long. In fact, it's endless. There's a clever little book called Dog and Cat Theology. Rethinking Our Relationship with Our Master. It's by Bob Sogren. And the thesis of the book is, if you feed a dog, I don't have a dog or a cat, but I, I do think this difference holds, and you pet owners, you can affirm it. The thesis of the book is, remember, it's dog and cat theology, thinking about our relationship with God. If you feed a dog and clean a dog and pet a dog and love a dog and fuss over a dog, the dog thinks you must be God. If you feed a cat and pet a cat and love a cat and fuss over a cat, the cat thinks he must be God. His point is we're at the place in the church now where we think we're God. And in this book, he imagines it's, fic it's fiction. He imagines this conversation. Job had uh, 13 kids. I forget the ratio of 
men to women. You can correct me, point it out. I do know that it says, know what it says about his daughters? They were the most beautiful in all the land. And he imagines, remember they were all killed at the same time, the story of Job, the book of Job, the account of Job. And so he imagines this conversation that all these kids had with God. Upon meeting him face to face. Kids. Lord, do you mind if we have a few moments with you? Lord. Of course not. Absolutely. Kids. Well, we're kind of curious. Why did we all have to die at the same time? Lord, just why exactly did you do that? Lord. Well, I wanted to reveal my glory by teaching your father a lesson. What? The kids say. You took all of us home early just to teach our father a lesson. That's right, the Lord said. But God. And now the cat theology comes out. My brothers and I had a business. It was just starting up. It was going really well. The oldest says, Lord, and I was actually about to inherit my father's business. You took me home before him. One daughter remarks, Lord, I was, I was dating a person. We were going to get married. We were going to have kids. And her little sister adds, God, I was hoping to get married too. Another one said, I was, I was going to go into the ministry. I had all these plans. And then in unison, they all say, in the midst of all this, you wanted to teach our father a lesson about us. So that's why you took us all home. What about us? the Lord. I'm sorry you're so confused. You see, it's not about you. It's tough telling that to a cat, isn't it? It's not about you. It's about my plan and revealing my glory in a myriad of different ways. And I allowed you to die early so that I could reveal my glory through your Father. Lord, it just doesn't seem fair. Well, just to let you know, the way I run my creation is not based on fairness. It's still based on revealing my glory. And in what I did through your Father, my glory shone brightly. But I do have something here for you. And then God rewards them in ways they never would have imagined. They're speechless. And they finally mutter some words. What? We get all this? Lord, yes, I love you so much. You played your roles well in being a part of revealing my glory, and that is what it has been about from the beginning. Some I bless with things. Some I allow to be persecuted. Some I bring home early. It's all a beautiful stained glass window revealing my glory. And then Bob Sogren concludes, you see, Cats only focus on God's blessing while on earth. Where are the blessings in these 70 years that I'm alive, they ask. Dogs realize that their lives can be in ruins for those 70 or so years, and eternity is where the Lord's glory is revealed greatly in their lives. 
The Apostle Paul writes, For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paths, right paths, don't always feel right with any of us, given our fallen hearts. But God calls every one of us to display His glory in different ways. Those who don't marry can devote service and devotion to the Lord in a way no married person can. The Apostle Paul tells us that. Marriage, marriage is the picture. Christ and our relationship with Him is the reality. Paul says that. Marriage is the shadow Christ's relationship to his church is the object that casts the shadow. What I'm saying is, don't judge God by falling in love with the picture. Fall in love with Christ. The will of God is the will any of us, gay or straight, would choose. If only we had all the facts. If only we had all the facts. Pray with me.